Bird's Eye View is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Welcome in to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and for baseless opinion. Today is the 21st of April, 2014, and this is episode 74. My name is Jake English, and here, as always, to clean up my messes and to make me look good is Scott Magnus. Incorrect. I'm the one that makes the messes. Fair enough. Yeah. If you're listening to our voices right now, it's very likely that you found us on our website, which is birdseyeviewbaltimore.com, and Scott Still has that new site smell. Yeah, but my messes are quickly uh, fouling it up again. I'm really regretting having said that. I'm really regretting that. I'm going to scratch that off on the the list of things I can safely say on the intro. Um, So you're down to three. (laughs) But also, it's likely that you found us on the Baltimore Sports Report Network, where we can be found with our wonderful other sister wife wife podcasts at baltimoresportsreport.com slash network. You can also find us on iTunes, where we encourage you to go out to rate the show. We'd appreciate a five-star rating, but we appreciate your honesty even more. Do that. Leave a message with your Twitter handle. Scott is desperate to give something away. Mystery prize. By the end of April. We can also be reached out and touched on social media. At Facebook, at facebook.com slash bevcast. You can find us on Google+, Plus if anybody's still on that. I'm not going to give you directions. Come find us. And you can find us at Twitter at Bird's Eye View, B-A-L. Now, Scotty, before we get into the drink of the week, I want to give a quick reminder that if you scroll all the way down on the new website, you can find the Amazon banner to click and buy whatever it is that you're into buying these days. We really appreciate it if you do it that way. It helps us out, helps us keep the lights on. And if you enjoy anything at all that the two of us idiots say throughout the week, that's a nice way to show your appreciation. That having been said, Scott Magnus, what is your drink of the week? Um, my drink of the week is um, National Bohemian Beer, which was first brewed in 1885. Oh, boy. What a beer. Yes. So uh, how about you, Jake? I am also drinking a National Bohemian uh, beer. I actually am drinking it out of the bottle. And so I got a uh, cap 335, which, spoiler alert, Norman Rockwell. Mm. Mm. Um, speaking of which, for those individuals that do consume the mustache beverage beer, there are tickets at most beer stores right now where you can get half off uh, your tickets as a mail-in rebate through the Natty Bow Company. So if you want half off Orioles tickets, go get these tabs. So I've already picked up like 60 to 80 of these uh, things to mail into the National Bohemian Company. I think they're going to have an issue with me, though. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, why don't you take us through a, a run through the medical wing? Sure. Well, we're going to start with the uh, top topic, which is Manny Machado. He started his extended spring training games on Saturday. He went two for four, and uh, rumor is he's going to start rehab assignments this week. Um, 
so I guess we'll keep an eye out and an ear out and see what's going on with Manny Machado, but it looks like he's progressing well and we're looking for, you know, a mid-May return basically. Yeah. You, you hear rumors that it could be, you know, 10 days. He's going to need his full uh, time in the minors. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. The other thing that I, I think is interesting is what are we going to get out of Manny when he comes back with the struggles that young Jonathan Scope has been having? People have been, you know, talking about Manny as if his return is going to just solve all the, the team's woes, but I mean, what can we really expect from him in the short and the long term? Um, perfection. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. What else you got in the medical wing? Um, I also have J.J. Hardy as day-to-day with a hamstring injury. He was out of the lineup on – actually came out of the lineup on Sunday night, which was instrumental to some of the defensive lapses that occurred in the field. Stop. We're not talking about this. Okay. And he was out of the lineup on Monday as well. Um, there wasn't word of whether he could have been in the lineup or not, but they basically kept him out. So we'll have to watch on Tuesday to see if he's back in the lineup, but – Right now, day-to-day for J.J. Hardy. And then the biggest news that's going through the locker room right now is the flu. It's the flu! Anyone and everyone has been hit by the flu. The flu! So there's a rampant flu virus going through uh, all of uh, the locker room. It's affected coaches, managers, media personalities, communication directors. Everybody has been affected by this. So... um, I'm thinking um need to get rid of those rats that are carrying the plague. And um it, could they at least share it with the opposing clubhouse? No, Delman Young doesn't go to the other opposing team's clubhouse. I would like to think that right before they sent uh Brian Mattis to the hospital, they had him just lick all the doorknobs in the opposing clubhouse. It's a winning strategy. That's truly a loogie right there. <laughs> I wish I wish I could say that we planned that out better, but that's just unfortunate. Yes. All right. Do you have anything else in the medical wing? I do not. All right. In that case, it's time to head deep into the twat. This week on the Twitter, folks. All right. Weird scheduling going on for the Orioles in the early season, and I'm not just talking about 11 a.m. games on a Monday. Uh, Utah Street Report, which is at Utah Street Report, uh, tweeted out, the Red Sox, Rays, and Jays have already played at Camden Yards. Yankees don't play here until last series before the All-Star break. Odd. Well, it's because Brian Roberts is going to get hurt as soon as he comes to the plate, so they want to have the All-Star break to be able to heal him afterwards. That's weird, though, isn't it? I mean, that seems odd. Seems a bit odd, but I guess, you know, the New York folks will be moving down south for summer, so why they're moving to Baltimore, I don't know why. Other things on the Twitter, um, is Tim getting attention? Um Orals Uncensored, you can follow them at, at O's Uncensored, it says hashtag ace, and they retweet from Mass and Steve, which is Steve Molesky, who we'll be talking to tonight. It says Chris Tillman, who faces Boston Friday night, is now second in AOL in ERA at .84. Hugh Darvish is first at .82. That seems pretty good. Yeah, he's right up there, too, in terms of uh, war right now for pitchers as well. Who would have thunk it? Yeah. Also, in who would have thunk it news, uh, in the you can't predict the ball category, Mark Brown from Camden Chat at Eat More SK uh, tweeted out that Solarte of the New York Yankees homers off of Grant Balfour, who's now batting 373, 488, 569 slash line, higher OPS than all Orioles regulars. Baseball, man. Yeah. So we came across another stat, and we're just not sure if it's on Twitter. We couldn't find it, but I'm sure someone posted because it's random, useless information, and that's exactly what Twitter is for. So we were at the game on Sunday, and Adam Jones had an infield hit, which made Adam Jones reach 1,000 hits. So congratulations to Adam Jones. Um, 
we don't like to talk about that Sunday either because it was bad memories. Actually, that was probably one of the first games that we actually left when we didn't have our kids with us early. Yeah, well, I'm going to defend us ever so slightly. We left early for two reasons. Okay. First, we we left early to uh, to protect what we could of our good mood uh, for the rest of the day so we didn't sour the day with our family, and we didn't want our wives to be mad. And second of all, we it's left— It's not like I said, oh, or something. We left so that we could drink heavily at the Camden Pub, mm. which I think is a worthy cause no matter the occasion. Especially when I'm buying. Especially when you are buying. Sir. Yes. All right, Scott, I've fallen down on the job. I've failed you on the twat this week. What? What did you do wrong now? One of my favorite now, right. <laughs> One of my favorite tweets of the week. I, I thought that I had favorited so I could come back to it and I just, I can't find it. And that is having to do with Boston's neck coverings. You mean the ascots? Yes, the ascots. Yeah. The, you know, the, a couple of the Boston guys were wearing those goofy neck coverings because it, it's so cold, and they play for a team in New England, and it never gets cold there. Mm-hmm. Um, but somebody, and, and I just, you know, I, I can't find the tweet, uh, tweeted out a picture, in, uh, I think in response to something we tweeted out, it was a picture of Fred from Scooby-Doo. Um, so whoever you are out there who tweeted us with the picture of Fred from Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo, you made, you made the twat this week. I, I wish I could credit you. My memory sucks and I, I've fallen down on the job. And last for the twat, again, talking about the series in Boston, I want to give out a big shout out to our friends, the Baltimoreans who can be found at B morons, uh, our wives, favorite podcasters, yes. um, who commented on the Fenway effect. And the Fenway effect was perfectly encapsulated here where they said, how do the Red Sox manage to make you feel like you're losing even when you're winning? Spot on, gentlemen. Spot on. Thanks, as always, for your insight. Yep. Way to make our lives lust for you on a day-in, day-out basis. Okay. Well, I feel incredibly creeped out, as I'm sure our listeners do. And to fix that, I say, again, we bring in a real expert. Someone that I can lust over. Someone we can talk to that'll set us straight. And lust over. Okay, more more bird's eye view is on the way. Steve Molesky is a featured blogger for MassInSports.com whose excellent work covers the Baltimore Orioles as well as their farm system. From the Dominican Development League to AAA, Steve is the best source in and around Birdland for all the skinny on the birds of tomorrow. In addition to his work on Maskin, Steve Molesky has been a staple of the Baltimore sports market, appearing on the radio in both WBAL and 105.7 The Fan, as well as on television where he's a regular presence on Masson. He joins us tonight on Bird's Eye View, and we're delighted to have him. Steve, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us. You got it, guys. How you doing? Doing great. We're a lot better this, than we were last night. This afternoon really helped us out. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, it was kind of rough in the Twitterverse uh, after that blown lead of uh, yesterday, last night, and two in a row, man, I don't know, might have broken Twitter if uh, the Orioles had blown a 5 nothing lead followed by a 6 nothing and it got dicey. It just never seems to be easy in some of these ballparks, and Fenway Park is one of them. And, um, you know, they were 
fortunate, but they were also good at the end to do enough to escape with the split. Well, let me ask you this, and we're Scott and I are going to talk about the Boston series in our next segment, and I would, I would hate to sully your name by bringing you into that conversation. Um, but are you satisfied with a split in Boston? I mean, you know, you want to go when it's a four-game series, you want to win every series. It's hard to go three and one. You know, most of the time you're trying to go two and one. So four-game series are hard to win because you have to take three out of four. But the Orioles, they did enough to win three out of four, I thought. Um, you know, the dis- many disappointing things over the last two days, but I-, I think it's being overlooked a little bit is the starting pitching because, you know, both Jimenez and Chen were staked to five and six run leads, and they didn't finish six innings. And, I mean, you know, it doesn't seem to be asking too much to get six when it's five nothing, and neither one could do it, and that's going to be a problem if it stays that way over the course of 162. We know it's a focus of Oriole fans and media is, are they getting enough innings out of their starters? And, you know, when you get a 5 nothing lead, you, you hope you could get 6-7, you know, something like that, and, and those guys couldn't do it. Absolutely. Well, that actually leads into one of the things that we wanted to ask you about. Uh, Buck Showalter has hinted to the fact that TJ McFarland will probably join the club tomorrow um, to bolster a bullpen that has been decimated both by uh, inefficient outings by the starters as well as by that flu bug that has gone just ripped through the clubhouse. And the amazing schedule put out by Major League Baseball. (laughs) Yes, thanks to that as well. If you had to guess, who do you think would go down to make room for a guy like TJ McFarlane on the 25-man roster? I mean, it, it, it sounds like they might be leaning towards um, Steve Pierce, who cannot be optioned and would have to be designated for assignment. And that's just the speculation of, you know, guys like my colleague, Rakabaka, who was with the team in Boston. What does that guy reporters. know? What's that? I said, what does that guy know? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's pretty clued in on some of those moves, <laughs> as you know. So, um, I mean, it, it, that would be tough, but I think Hardy's situation does muddy the waters here now we could wake up tomorrow and the Orioles could find out that this hamstring is going to take 10 days to heal and if they find that out with Hardy's situation then maybe they do DL him and that's the move and hamstrings even if they're minor can take a few days so you know you don't want to get in a position where you're playing a a 24-man roster for six or seven or eight days but with a hamstring sometimes you need a couple days so those are always tricky you know, do you DL him and it's 15 days, but he could be back in eight? Do you play short for seven? How do you know? How do you handle that? And so um, it, it complicates that decision, I think, a little bit. Well, I mean, speaking of uh, injuries, uh, Buck had a situation last year where he had mysterious injuries popped up and uh, people were put into the DL. Is it a possibility that Steve, Beers, Steve Pierce actually gets a mysterious illnesses and put into the 15 day DL, saving him from being DFA'd? I guess it's possible. Um, you know, the people I talk to in the industry, the, somewhere along the way, a doctor has to sign off on these DLs. So I, 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 I hate to say there are phantom ones, but I guess there are ones that make us raise our eyebrows sometimes with some injuries. Um, and maybe it's something a guy would play through. All of a sudden, you need a roster spot, and all of a sudden, he can't play through it or they don't want him to. And so uh, I, I, I doubt we're going to see that. But like you said, it's it, anything's possible. And 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 someone told me in baseball, I said, well, do teams call each other out on that? And they say no, because they know they're going to need to do that in, in next week, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's and one so of those unwritten kinda, rules. <laughs> yeah, they kind of just don't, you know, they look the other way. But the league can intervene, and I don't think the league 
you know, if a team's pushing the envelope a few times, the league can check into that stuff. So, do you think that's more of a uh, league situation or a players association issue? Uh, it's. I think if you if you are DLing someone who legitimately wasn't really should be DLed, I think the league would potentially look into that. But you know, a lot oh. of that stuff they kind of somehow it happens but i don't know i I, w- I wouldn't think we'll see that but like you said it's po- anything's possible fair enough uh moving on to some other uh items throughout the club one of the things that we wanted to ask you about was chris davis um and steve actually had an article about this a few days ago regarding chris davis and his power numbers and whether orioles fans should be concerned so i recommend everyone go to mass and sports read steve's articles they're always great in fact you should just read them every single day i mean that's what i do there you go. That's good advice. Yes. <laughs> uh, the the power seems to be down. He's scuffling. Uh, you know, while he's still getting on base, he's, he's, you know, watching a lot of pitches go by, but he's got very few extra base hits. Uh, at this point, I think it's around four doubles and a home run. Uh, he also has a pretty high K rate of about 26% at this point in the club, um, which, you know, kind of matches what he showed in the second half of the season uh, last year when he, he kind of stumbled uh, uh, through the gate. Whereas K rate was around, you know, twenty nine, thirty percent. What what should we make of the start that Chris Davis has had so far? I mean, I I don't think it's too much cause for concern yet. I mean, if he's doing this, if we're still having this conversation in two or three weeks, then it might be another issue. But I, I thought it was a big hit for him today. The first few innings were big for him. He took a four pitch walk. He didn't, you know, he showed the patience in the first inning. Uh, he actually walked in the fifth again, and he singled in between in the third. And so I think that's a good sign for him. Uh, I, I just think he's probably the combination of they're pitching him so tough, they're not letting him get too many good pitches to hit. He's probably pressing a little. The team's not hitting many homers. I'm sure he feels pressure on that. Um, and so, you know, he's chasing a few pitches. He, he did do this at times last year, but it, it seemed like when he got out of whack a little bit at the plate, it was only four, five, six games, and he'd get locked back in. And may- maybe this year, as he said, I was locked in from day one last year, and, and I haven't gotten to that point yet. But I think he will. I don't think he's going to hit 53 home runs again, but I think some are definitely coming. Well, one of the comments that Chris was making today was he said, I'm really you know, getting on base, and uh, you know, I'm going to steal bases out there. And he was kind of being tongue-in-cheek about it, but he was also making reference to that the people around him are really raking the ball. You know, you look at Nelson Cruz has been in that number two position. You look at uh, Adam Jones, who's been in the number four position. Um, you definitely can see significant increases to both of their offensive numbers with Chris Davis in that number three spot. But that's completely different where Chris Davis was last year. Chris Davis was in that number four. And for a good portion of the season last year, he was also in that number five spot. Do you think by pushing Chris Davis up to that number three spot that he's changed his approach a little bit and is just trying to get on base as opposed to, you know, hitting the home runs? and? No, I, I don't think so. I think he's he's he. Uh, I think he's doing the same thing anywhere, and I think mostly you're going to see Jones, Davis, three, four, or the other way around. And either you know, and those guys are both good with however it it falls. And you know, Chris is a guy. He does like to keep it loose. He likes to joke. He, you know, I'm sure there are pressures on him that are not outwardly seen. He's a very comfortable guy to be around in the clubhouse. He talks easily with the reporters. He's just a laid-back, calm guy. That's the presence he exudes. And, you know, he, he, gave, he gave me an interesting answer last year when I interviewed him mid-year, can you keep this up? And he said, you know, when the pressure was on me, it was last year. And by that, he meant 2012. He said, because I told my wife in spring training of 2012, this might be my f- 
first real and last real chance to show I can be an everyday big league player. And he said, if I don't do it now, I'm a 4A guy. That's a label I might get stuck with. And I may never get another chance. And so he had, he had a big year, 33 home runs, and then he had a bigger year. So I, I think over time, again, he'll be fine. Long-winded answer here, but he's still got to do it. You know, he hasn't done it consistently yet. He is taking some walks, and I think as he chases fewer pitches, um, some things will come to him. And, and as you guys said, with other guys hitting around him, you know, you just can't keep passing by Chris Davis. Eventually, he'll get pitched to a little bit here and hopefully get some pitches he can drive. Well, let's talk about one of the guys that's hitting around him. Scott uh, alluded to Nelson Cruz uh, being in the number two spot uh, more frequently than we would have assumed at the beginning of the season. Of course, you know, opening day, he hits that home run, really the difference maker uh, in that game against the Red Sox. But uh, we're surprised to see Nelson Cruz being in the number two spot so much. I mean, do you have any insight as to why Buck keeps going to that particular move? Well, I think it's because they just don't have anybody who really fits in there. I mean, even Manny, when he first went to the two spot, we all were a little surprised by that. He he Um, struggled pretty mightily going to that number two spot to begin when he came up in the major league. So he eventually figured it out. But he he struggled very hard in that number two spot to figure out how to bat. Yeah, but I I just don't think Buck asks guys to hit a certain way in a certain spot. That's not what he does. I I think he just, as you guys know, he's very loyal to the left-right thing. So if Nick is batting first, then often you want a righty batting second, and then Davis is a lefty third. And so, you know, that it comes down to that a lot. And he doesn't seem to be a fan of Hardy there when he was healthy. He doesn't walk a lot, we know. And Hardy's uh, – and, 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 you know, so that there isn't really a fit in the two-hole, and I think it's by process of elimination some guys got in there, including Manny when he came up. But Manny, they we're kind of used to him there now when he's healthy and playing there, and it, it displaces the order nicely when Manny can get there and then Cruz can bat in, a, in more run production spots like he was really brought here to bat fifth is the way I, 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 I had figured it. And so I think as the season goes on, we'll see him hitting there a lot. Yeah, we, I completely agree with you. I think the only time I actually have heard so far this season where, you know, play discipline has changed slightly was when Tampa Bay came in and they were doing the shifts. And that Presley worked uh, with the Orioles um, in batting practice, basically pulling to the opposite field. But ever, other than that, I think Buck, you know, has faith in his players and is telling them, go up there and just contribute. I don't want you to hit a certain way. You're a baseball player. Go do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> He, he does. And I mean, the, the team's approach coming from Buck on down is to be aggressive. And so I know that rankles some fans who want better on base and, and they want the Orioles hitters to hit like the Red Sox hitters. And, and my response is that they can't. Right. It's like asking Nick Markakis, Nick, steal 30 bags this year. He can't. Right. So you have to do what you bring. That, that doesn't mean you can't be better. And I think there are situations in the game where I've seen someone like Hardy who goes up there trying to, to hit the ball out to left, you watch Hardy in the seventh or eighth inning of a 3-3 tie. It's a 1-2 count, and he gets a slider down the way. He'll punch it to right and take his single. Mm-hmm. In the third inning, he may try to jerk that ball and roll over it to short. But I do think the Orioles have some players who will do that occasionally, but not over nine innings. It, it, it's just not who they are. So I think we, we go through this often on my blog. They need to be better on base. Why aren't they better on base? I almost think there are a segment of fans – who would who would be happy if the Orioles had moved up to fourth in the league on base, but dropped to eighth in runs? It's almost yeah. like, hey, we're look, we're good at our base. Yeah, they scored fifty fewer runs. 
So I think they're going to score the runs the way they score them. They're eventually going to be among the league leaders in homers. And, you know, all these stats that, that are small samples early will start to smooth out. And they're going to be, in my opinion, still one of the better, one of the four or five top run scoring teams uh, in the league. But they won't get there the way some other teams do. Yeah, we were talking about this last week on our podcast about the uh, Orioles players being aggressive. And we were talking about first pitch swinging and whether that was of benefit or not to the Orioles. And when we broke out and looked at it on baseball reference for the first pitch swing, the Orioles were batting over 400 in first pitch swings, which is absolutely amazing. So, yes, the Orioles are an aggressive team, but they're seeing results from being that aggressive team. So why would you take that away from them? Exactly. And I, and I think you have to look at the pitch when it's the first pitch. If the pitch is a very hittable pitch and the hitter just doesn't hit it, then, okay, you know, try again next time. But if if the the if a pitcher's struggling with his command and he swings at the first pitch and it's on the inside corner, you're like, man, he, he swung at a pitcher's pitch. But you're, you're right. A lot of times fans notice when the outs made on the first pitch, but then when a guy has three hits and they all came on the first pitch, sometimes you don't notice. And, and there are plenty of hitting coaches and pitching coaches that will tell you sometimes the first pitch is the best one you get. So that that's the theme of the team. They're aggressive swingers. And and I don't think we'll see much of a change in that. And from my standpoint, I look at the replay and go, wow, he swung at a first pitch on the outer black. I don't get that. But if the guy swings at a very hittable pitch and he just doesn't hit it, I mean, that happens in the sport a lot. Speaking of uh, fans making uh, judgment calls like that, on Friday night, Jonathan Scope had a 4-4-4 game and fans were coming on the Twitterverse and basically saying, oh, you know, he's a Hall of Famer. You know, he's going to be an all-star. This is great. And then the game on Sunday happened, and Jonathan Scope is thrown to the wolves and uh, demonstrified by most of Orioles and Birdland and said, you know, this guy can't play third base. He shouldn't be up here. He needs to be sent back to the minor leagues. And it feels like it's a really tough position for him because, again, he's learning on the fly there and trying to be a third baseman. You know, you go through some of his minor league stats. He only played 24 games out of the 458 games that he's played in the minor leagues at third base. This is a new experience from him. Um you know, are Baltimore fans being way too aggressive in assuming that that skill set um, defensively, that basically he's been at second base and shortstop, should instantly transfer to third base? Well, I think that keep in mind that that um, social media and our blogs and the, and the message boards and call-in shows, and I've learned this over the years because I've been involved with all, all those avenues in some way, shape, or form, it's a hard lesson to understand, but the people you hear that are vocal represent a small percentage of the fans. Most of the fans will never call the show, will never write on my blog, will never question you or me on Twitter. They're just there. They love the team. They watch it. They read it all, but they don't participate. And that's a lot more than we think. So I don't think we can say all the fans think th- such and such. But when it comes to scope, it's been a wild ride because early on it was like there's no way he – cannot make the opening day roster. And then he got off to a two for 18 start. And I had fans tell me he's overmatched. I knew this was going to happen. And my response was, he's inexperienced. Come up for air. Let's give it some time. And then he hit a three run Jack off Tanaka and it was back to rookie of the year. Then he made two throwing errors. It helped cost him a game. And it was like, this kid's killing us. Then he got hot again. And then, the last few days. So it has been one wild ride for this kid. The one thing I do feel confident saying about Scope, and I've interviewed him since he played the lower minors, is he can mentally handle all this. 
that's important because you don't want a young kid to get too high or low. And, uh, you know, he's learning on the job, but sometimes scouts will tell you and, and professionals in baseball will tell you the final phase of a player's development is, has to often come at the major leagues. And so scope is getting some of that. Now, I don't think we know the answer to, is he ready? Yes or no today. But, you know, he, he's getting valuable experience. He's done some good things. He's done some, he's made some mistakes. All of it's leading to growth, which is going to eventually benefit this kid. And so I wish more people could be even keel about it. And I do think a lot are. We just don't hear from that group. You know what I mean? Sure. Another interesting thing about uh, Jonathan Scope's experience at the majors this, this uh, early in his career is that he, he plays for Buck Showalter. And one of the things that I really love about Buck is that Jonathan Scope has one of the toughest games of his young career uh, being involved in that last play in the game last night. And what happens? Buck starts him the next day at third base and puts him at sixth in the lineup, and it's as if nothing happened. Um, so I think that that confidence that Buck Showalter can help him build through these things is more of a teaching moment than anything else. And, you know, the games that that are affected by, uh, you know, miscues by scope, both in the field and at the, pla- uh, at the plate, are, are difficult to watch. But I think they'll make him a stronger player for it, and that can only help the Orioles organization. Well, again, I do think he's mentally tough, and I think he appreciates the confidence that Buck has in him. And Buck has been around a lot of young players, going back to Derek Jeter and others, and he just knows how to handle that. And you, and you don't do it in a punitive way. You don't take a kid who made two errors and, and don't play him for a week. How, how does that help? If he's not ready to play and, and you, can, and you send, need to send him in the minors, you do it. And that, that happens sometimes. But we've seen Buck do this with veterans often. They're in the lineup the next day. Now, today would have been interesting if Hardy had been healthy to play. A right-hander going, does Scope still start in there? Does he go Lombardozzi Flaherty? Well, it would have been interesting to see, but I think Flaherty being out, or Hardy being out meant that Scope was going to start somewhere. And, but Buck, like you said, he will back the kid. He will always publicly support him. He'll privately support him. And that, that's what it takes, you know? You, you, you're, you're, you, you, if you don't have the support of your manager, it just, I think that would be tough to be a player. And Buck will support these guys. He knows it's hard to play this game and he, he will be, he has their back, you know? All right. Enough of the majors talk. I want to go to the minor leagues. I mean, that's kind of okay. who I am. So I want to talk about Kevin Gossman. Um, Kevin Gossman, uh, the one thing that's been really interesting so far is not so much his results, but the aspect of the Orioles having him on a pitch count. So for the past few games, he's thrown 71 pitches, 69 pitches, 67 pitches, and then his last outing, he had 74 pitches. He's at a 3.24 ERA right now. You know, I understand why the Orioles are keeping him on a pitch count to a certain extent, but do you think that's going to have potentially a negative implication when he actually comes up here and is potentially put into the starting rotation and asked to throw 100 or 110 pitches? I think it could, but I'm expecting to see, but I don't, I'm just guessing here because no one's told me that eventually they are going to bump that up a little bit. It is curious, like you said, that he's being held to 70-some pitches right now. So clearly there's something in mind they have, whether it's limiting innings, limiting pitches, or both. Um, but it would seem to me that Gosman could throw 175 this year, but you know, I, I don't know what all they're thinking on that, but it is curious. Like well, how they're handling him. And I mean, to me, that tells me that he's a key part of this team at some point, And they know that. And he's being handled with kit gloves at the moment. And I would think if, if, they, if they're going to 
at some point bring him to the rotation, they wouldn't want to take him right from 70 pitches and ask him to throw 100. I would think there would be an immediate step or two between that. And so maybe over these next few weeks, we'll see a few 85, 90, 95 pitch outings. Uh, it'll be curious to, to track that. Yeah. I, the one thing that was interesting to me, too, is we've also seen in the bullpen some uh, rota- uh, some people in the, uh, from the reliefers uh, start being stretched out. Britain was one example of being a multi-inning reliever now. And even Mattis has been a multi-inning reliever, too. It's interesting because that wasn't generally the case last year with multi-inning relievers. Generally, it was you come in, you work your inning, you get out. And now we're starting to see these players, specifically from the Cavalry, all of a sudden start to be multi-inning relievers. Is there a possibility that they could just say, we're going to bring Gossman up and use him as a multi-inning reliever and also try to get rid of some of the situation with, like we were talking earlier with, Jimenez only getting through five innings or Chen only getting through five innings and using these guys as a two- or three-inning reliever? I mean, that's an interesting theory, and it's it, I wouldn't say we, we won't see it. We, we could potentially. And multiple inning relievers, I think, are going to become more valuable in this game because for a while there it was just everybody can go one inning. Or some guys go one batter. They're specialists. But to me, especially on this team, when, like you said, you have a lot of guys to go five and a third, 5.2, six, 5.2. And in the American League, a lot of games are lost in the sixth, seventh, and eighth while you're trying to get to your late inning relievers and your starter didn't go deep enough. And and a team that has – Middle relief, I guess, as they refer to it, that has a strength because most don't. That can be big. And so having had to me, that's why I say leave. I, first of all, I say leave Britain where he is because he's going well. He's found a pretty good release point, although it got a little out of whack here mm-hmm. in Boston. But um, I just say ride it out for a while. Totally agree with, with you. Him. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah, we're, just, we're, you we're, know, he's going well. He's confident. He has a good he, – he's in a good place. He's got a good comfort level with these coaches. Doesn't mean this can't change. You know, six weeks from now, it might be totally different. We'll see. But for now, they don't have an opening in the rotation. You know, even though guys are going short, they're, they're, this is the five for the moment. And again, in baseball, things can change fast. In 10 days, there might be two new guys there. Who knows? Yeah, well, but, we, we, we went know. short with our starters pretty much all last season as well. So I think Buck has right. learned from that to a certain regard and said, okay, if my starting rotation is going to go short and only pitch five or six innings, I've got to have be have relievers go multiple innings, and you know having Gossman be there, having Britton be able to do it, having Mattis be able to be there, and also having the possibility of Johan or Bundy even being able to contribute in August or September as a multiple inning reliever really is interesting in terms of setting up the bullpen for a pennant run or even in the playoffs. Exactly, and then you got guys like Steve Johnson and T.J. McFarland who we might yep. see tomorrow and i think mike wright is off the great start at triple a he could impact this thing before it's all over with and and yoon has got off the terrible start but i don't i think he's still a guy that they're going to be tracking to see if he can get there so you know the pitching depth you, you, there's a reason they say you can never have enough pitching and it just is so true and sometimes when it seems like you have a lot of depth one or two things go wrong and all of a sudden you don't and tampa bay is facing that now and so um yeah, it's important to have those guys that can do that. Well, Steve, I, I feel like I could listen to you talk all night, but that probably wouldn't be the most polite use of your time. So we're going to just thank you so much for uh, for coming on and sharing your thoughts with us. Again, we encourage everyone to go out to MassInSports.com to check out Steve Molesky's blog. And, uh, Steve, again, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, you got it, guys. Appreciate it, and have a good one.
Yeah, so that was quite some series in Boston, wasn't it? It was. It almost gave me a heart attack. Oh, that was a very, very clever musical choice there, Scott Magnus, especially since I thought something else was going to be used. (laughs) Well done, sir. Um, All I got to say is if you ever want to see something amazing, go uh, to YouTube, Google Olivia Newton-John heart attack, and uh, you'll be uh, in store for some awesome 80s sound effects and video effects. So Great. Well, Scott... Can I can I say something about this weekend in Boston? Sure, you can always say something, Jake. All right, now, before I get started, I want to remind everyone to go back and listen to our show from April 15th of last year. It was a Monday, we were recording our podcast like every other Monday, and we took time out of the top of the show to address what had happened at the Boston Marathon because we thought it was really important that we set some time aside and say, you know, we rag on the Red Sox and Red Sox fans a lot, but... This was an important moment for our country and for all of us as people, as human beings. You know, we want to make sure that we are showing that respect, that support for the city of Boston, for its people, but also for Red Sox fans, because when it comes down to it, people that are absolutely crazy about baseball are our kind of people, right? And and they're people that, that we want to show solidarity for. So, you know, we're rough on them, but at the same time, you know, much love. I want to make sure I remind people of that fact, because I don't want to have what I'm about to say be misconstrued in any way, shape, or form. Are you with me so far, Scott? As long as it doesn't mention the T word, we're in good shape. (laughs) All right. I I just want to say that if something terrible had happened in Baltimore and a national broadcast like ESPN came to town, I would expect them to talk about it and to focus on it. I I totally understand that some of that needed to happen in ESPN's Sunday Night broadcast. But watching that broadcast... At times, it sort of felt as if ESPN had set up a marathon memorial and a baseball game broke out. Oh, and another team besides Boston happened to be there. Now, I understand that Baltimore fans have a reputation for being somewhat provincial, for having a chip on their shoulder, for feeling that the national media is out to get them. You see it not only for the Orioles, but particularly among Ravens fans. But it was really rough sometimes watching the broadcast last night, both for the 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 emotional you know look that they tried to take at Boston at every opportunity they got, but that wasn't the worst part. We were treated on that Sunday night to the reason that I stopped watching the four letter network, not sports center p t i any of the other stuff I used to, to to really enjoy watching because the network caters to large markets and front runners, and they're shameless in their lack of balance. The late innings turned into John Cruck begging for Red Sox home runs. Now, eventually, the Red Sox did get back into the game, and they did win. But it really, really sounded like he was desperate to have that happen. I'd ask you, Scott, you think if the the situation were reversed, they would be that interested in the Orioles coming back and winning the game? Mm, No. The other thing that really bothered me was the, the lack of preparation. And they called Jimenez our number one starter. They reported that Troy Patton was returning from an injury. And look, I understand that they can't be experts in all 30 clubs, but it was super painful to listen to. Of course, unless 
you were a member of Pink Hat Nation. So I'm just going to say that, get it out there. I, I tried to, to phrase it in such a fashion that wouldn't make me sound like a jerk, but I think I've probably failed as per usual. I did not enjoy watching Sunday Night Baseball, and it was not just because of the, the result. I, uh, I don't think you're alone. Um, I think a lot of people felt the same way. I just think it's more along the lines of it really doesn't surprise me or the rest of Birdland that that was the kind of coverage that we were expected to get. That's why it was just part par of the course. We were we were the bad guys really last on on Sunday night. It's, it's as simple as that. Is we were the ones that were in the way of victory and the happy ending story. The so, script, yeah, the script was written and. Um, there's got to be a protagonist and antagonist, and we were the antagonist. Well, thank goodness we didn't disappoint. Yes, exactly. I'm going to do my darndest to pretend that that game never happened. So let's talk about the series as a whole. What were some of the key takeaways that you took from that series, watching the Orioles play four games against the Red Sox? Well, I actually was pretty encouraged by our starting pitching. Yes, I realized that we didn't get deep into games, but in terms of pitching performance and plate location, I thought the starting pitching did a great job throughout that entire series. I felt like we kept it close the entire series. Um, and, you know, yes, we lost two games out of that four, but at the same point, every game was really close all the way through the end, and sometimes the chips fell one way, and oftentimes the chips fell the other way. So I think the starting pitching kept us in games, and that's as much as we can ask from the starting pitching to do. Well, I, I want to talk for a second about Hobaldo Jimenez. Um I was really in, encouraged by what I saw from him. Um, the most the most disappointed I was in that entire game uh, was not with the Jonathan Scope episode. Nope. It was the la- it was the meatball. It was the last pitch yeah, was that Abaldo Jimenez threw. Because literally, while we were watching, I turned to my wife after the Dave Wallace uh, pitching visit, and I said, "The only thing he can't do here is give up a home run." And boom, next pitch. Yep. It was very similar to the uh, David Ortiz and Mike Napoli home runs that he gave up against in the first series when he played against the Red Sox. It was, why would you throw the ball there? Um, and it's very interesting, too, because he had some great plate control, especially in the outer portion of the plate for that whole game. And it was just that one pitch that really sunk him and put a big you know, exclamation point of, this is a great game except for this. Yeah, I really thought until that point, you know, yeah, he didn't go particularly deep. It was 5.1 innings, but he was in, cr- in control for a lot of the game, and it was the best that we had seen from him thus far. And, and I will say this. If he had managed to finish that inning, and I know that ifs and buts and all that kind of crap, but if he had managed to finish that inning and had given up three runs, I mean, that would be a really important start for him to get back on track. Going six, giving up three runs, it's, it's technically a quality start. Against the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. I, I would have loved that. It was really disappointing with, it, with the way that last pitch happened. But I was encouraged by what I saw out of Jimenez. Again, have to get rid of the home run ball. It's as simple as that. That's been the Achilles heel for him throughout his entire career. As a fly ball pitcher, he really needs to cut down those home runs and not serve up those big flopping meatballs. Um, that just comes back into not having your mechanics break down throughout the course of the game. And I thought he did a great job right until he hit about 90 pitches. So hopefully with some further seasoning throughout the whole season, you know, he gets up to 90 to 100 pitches and he doesn't fall apart like that. He can get through the inning. And Buck is notorious for letting pitchers try to work themselves out of a situation. And this is one of the situations where it backfired on Buck. And I don't blame him for it. It just it just happens. All right. Well, what else did you see from a from a global perspective uh, from this series? 
Um, I thought Adam Jones had a really good series. Um, I think that was one of the big things was Adam Jones, I think, really stepped up big in the series and started hitting with consistency, not just so much hitting balls in the infield and you know making some scrappy hits, but actually hitting to the gap. And even some of the plays that he got outs on were up the gap and were great defensive plays made by the Red Sox. So Adam Jones, I think, had a really great offensive um, series. So who was your star, really? Uh, if you ask me in, in total, I think the real star was the bullpen. Okay. And, you know, that's kind of a cop-out answer, but the bullpen came in and put out fires in a lot of cases, and they they kept us in games that we needed to be in. Even the ones that we lost close, and again, I'm trying to forget that game ever happened, but even the games that we lost, you know, remember, the bullpens did what they could to keep us close. And I, I think that if the starters are going to go short, you know, these guys are going to be the real linchpin of the team. Yeah, and you're right. The bullpen did give up a few runs. Um, but a lot of those runs also on the game that you don't want to talk about were unearned runs. Sure. Um, and that was due to a defensive lapse on Sunday night with three errors, which dropped the Orioles from being number one in defensive metrics all the way down to number fourth just in one game. But, I mean, you know, we talk about the guys, you know, we're going to lavish over over Britain all all season. Meek had a really great performance. Yep. Uh, Tommy Hunter came in and had a very, uh, you know, Don Stanhouse uh, kind of uh, performance, but he closed the door today. Ryan Webb. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, Ryan Webb. I mean, even though he, Ryan Webb started off the season kind of poor, we're like, eh, for the past four games, he's come out and pitched scoreless innings. So that's encouraging. Yeah. Something that's not encouraging, and you mentioned it, defense. Yeah. Um, we talked about this with Steve Molesky with Jonathan Scope. You know, he's definitely had some defensive miscues. Definitely cost us one of the games that, you know, we were watching where Chris Tillman gave up no earned runs and still lost that game. Um, and then coming back to the situation, I guess, on Sunday night where, you know, he had several miscues as well that caused, you know, several unearned runs to come in. And, you know, there's an intertwined aspect to that last throw. And I'm really not going to get into it because it's been covered by anybody that actually listens to this podcast as a true fan, Orioles fan, they know what happened with Jonathan Scope. They know what happened with David Lowe. It was just bad baseball. It was baseball that you would have seen back in 2009 or 2010. And that's not just, that's not the, you know, performance that you expect to see from Buck Walters' team. And I'm sure Buck said the same thing to his players. But you come out the next day and you go right back to work. Sure. The one thing about that play that I thought was disappointing, and again, I'm not going to harp on, on Jonathan Scope. That's two bad throws in this series, in this short season that we've seen from David Lowe, who was supposed to be a real defensive standout. You know, Dan Duquette try, tried to sell us on, you're going to love what you see out of David Lowe, both from a hustle standpoint and in defense. And I haven't been impressed by his arm so far. Now, again, you know, look at the chances he's had. Okay, maybe by the end of the season, it'll be a different story. But here in April... I'm not that impressed with his arm. All right. Let me ask you this question. This is just making an assumption here, so you're going to have to work with me on this one. Yes, David Lowe has had two very bad throws, very, very bad throws. But you don't think that has anything to do with the concussion-like symptoms that he has? If he is having some, you know, imbalance in his ability to, you know, see things or, you know, just be able to balance out a situation, if his rotation or his extension of his arm is changed at all— that release point could be completely different and it could be causing not so much the arm strength to be an issue, but it could just be an aspect of 
just poor mechanics. If if he has that issue, he shouldn't be in left field. And I and I to, understand answer, that. to answer your question straight up, no, I don't think that's related. Okay. Because if it were, I don't think he'd be on the field. Okay. Um the last major Unless he's put on the D out tonight. <laughs> the last major thing that I, I want to talk about is just wasted leads. Yeah. You know, it's a real bummer to see the Orioles score a bunch of runs and not have it stand up. And uh, you know, we we talked ad nauseum. You know, even in the twat we talked about being in Fenway Park, you know, you feel like no lead is safe. But oof, it's tough to watch not only your team get beat when the you know the club uh, when when the Red Sox claw their way back, but also even in a victory where the Red Sox claw their way back to get real close. Well, I mean, you're right, we had wasted leads. But the other thing that was interesting too, and this happened both for Sunday's game and Monday's game, is we scored early. But we didn't tack on additional runs, especially for Sunday's game. Sunday's game, you had Adam Jones at third base after he had a double and Matt Wieters extended him over to third base. And you had an opportunity for a sacrifice fly there to bring in an insurance run. And you didn't do it. So you put yourself in a situation of, oh, crap, we're in trouble now. Um, you know, I think Ryan Flaherty actually getting that insurance run in and making it a seven to five ball game really well i mean that basically saved the game that was the difference that was the difference so again getting those insurance runs and tacking on those extra runs and not just saying we got one big inning is a big deal there was many times especially during the sunday night game where the orioles bats just went completely quiet for several innings so it's up and then almost and it's quiet and we've seen that a lot for several games which is all right the orioles all of a sudden pounding the ball and then all of a sudden it's well the last 12 batters have been retired it's like well what just happened here the orioles were doing great to start and now all of a sudden, second way through the lineup, they're not doing so well. So it's getting the lead, but also consistently building to that lead. Making the adjustments. And it's making adjustments, but it's also keeping the pedal to the metal and keep tacking on runs, tacking on runs. You can never have too many runs. Unless it's 30 to 3, you can never have too many runs. And even then, try to break the record and try to get like 36 runs or whatever. We shouldn't talk about the 30 to 3 game. I know, I know. A um, right, couple quick hits yeah. um, from from the games um i love the inconsistency of boston red sox fans they boo when the orioles pitchers uh call the catcher out to have a quick conference on the mound but they don't seem to mind when their hitters step out of the batting box a million times they get on nelson cruz for steroids and kind of forget that they've got some guys on their roster with some questions yeah inconsistency of boston red sox fans I guess that's everywhere. Um, short memory spans. Um, again, when you are on the Twitterverse and you are talking to Red Sox fans, they will be able to quickly point out saying, hey, we've got three championships since 2004. We're elite. And then you quickly point out, how many championships did you have the 90 years prior to that? <laughs> and it's more of the aspect of, I wasn't a Boston fan back then. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. Yeah. Um, let's talk real quick. David Ross versus Matt Wieters. I, by the way, on Twitter earlier this week called him Cody Ross. Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> um, so Ross, by the way, Ross was one of the vocal anti Nelson Cruz guys yes. of the Boston uh, lineup. He took some umbrage with some uh, pitches that were up and in while he was trying to bunt. How dare the Orioles pitch it? Well, he basically shouted at Bud Norris saying, adjust it, basically saying, you just go for the out. You don't have to be throwing it up and in at me, which is best part though. Best part was he's mouthing off the Bud Norris. And you know, I don't know how tall uh, Ross is, but he's not a, a huge guy. And then Matt Weider steps in front of him, puts his glove on his chest. And the demeanor of Ross changed almost immediately. Well, on 
Wikipedia that says that David Ross is six foot two. There ain't no way he's six foot two. Looking at the difference between him and Matt Wieters, because yep. Wieters is six foot four, six five. Yeah, yeah. So there's no way there was only a three inch gap there. There was at least six or seven inches in gap there. So I'm thinking he might be like five foot eleven. And they added three more inches on top of it. I mean, that's what Boston people normally do is they add three inches. It was just an interesting moment yes. where uh, it was something from nothing. Um, speaking of something from nothing. Like David Ortiz going from the Twins to the Red Sox. He went from nothing to something. Let's let's <laughs> let's talk about uh, one of my favorite players, and that's Pops Clevenger. Yeah. The speed. The speed from the backup cap- catcher. Today, uh, two interesting things happened. He tagged from first to second on a on a deep fly, and then he scored from second base. Yeah, it, it's so funny. We talk about you know uh, Steve Clevenger being useful with the stick, but it's nice to see him actually advance in the base paths too. He he kind of looks like a real baseball player that could be one of twenty five guys. Catchers with moderate speed, it's pretty impressive. Well, usually we're used to dump trucks out on the yes, exactly. out on the base paths. Um, another thing that was interesting this week was. Instant replay came, and the Orioles had their first instant replay challenge issued by Buck Walter. And it was in a pivotal situation because it was a run that was given to the Orioles with Nelson Cruz's single. Um, and the Orioles won that. It was an obvious safe call, and the umpire called him out, and it was reversed, and they got a run out of it. So I guess kudos to the Orioles for making that call and saying, hey, we want to challenge this. There was also that other challenge situation we were involved in this weekend where— That wasn't a challenge. Well, no, it was a review. Which one? The the could have been Jeffrey Mayer like situation. Well, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. There was a review, but that was so obvious that it wasn't a home run that it doesn't matter. When has it mattered that it was obvious that it wasn't a home run? When well, they it called to it to the Orioles. They called it not a home run on the field, so it wasn't like they were going to come back and reverse it. Actually, now that I'm saying it out loud, you're right. They could have reversed it. <laughs> as soon as it happened, I was like, that's so clearly not a home run. Of course, they'll reverse it. Um, but it was an interesting series, um, getting two out of two, Jake, how do you feel about going two out of two? You know, you, uh, got into a, a, a Twitter debate, if you will, a friendly debate with Javi Burns from the BSR podcast about what we needed to do in Boston. He said, we had to win three out of four. You said it's an emotional series. Boston's going to be ready to play. We we've got to split the series. It's difficult for me to feel good about a split when I know that we could have gotten so much more. Having blown a game where we had a five-run lead is devastating because having taken three or four of those games would have been amazing. That having been said, they're obviously a good club. The Orioles aren't playing their best ball yet, in my opinion. I will take a a split, an emotional series in Boston around Patriots Day weekend. Let's get the hell out of here, get the hell out of the country, and just be glad that we got the two wins. What, what are your thoughts? My opinion is if you go 500 on the road, you're going to be in good shape. You just need to come at home and represent and, you know, play 600 ball and you'll be in good shape. The only other thing I want to point out was this is coming back to the original topic you made about the four letter network. And you were talking about the Orioles are not playing their best ball. And the reason one of the reasons that they're not playing their best ball is because Manny Machado is not in the lineup. And Orioles fans have been harping about that. But the one thing the four-letter network really didn't make mention of was Manny Machado not being in the lineup. Instead, they were focusing on, well, Shane Victorino is not in the Red Sox lineup, so it's really hurting their chances in this game. And all I could think was, really? 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 And with that, Jake, you know, I'm going to say really one more time because, well, there were mistakes made, and I made them. 
So Jake, with that, I think it's time to claim who was the best and who was the worst. Ah, the melodious sound of Brian Setzer. Yes, Jake, last week we went with weighted on base average. And he, Whoa! Yeah. And even though you openly mocked it, you chalk up the win this week with Nelson Cruz over Matt Wieters. Nelson Cruz had a .403 weighted on base average versus Matt Wieters .325 for the week. Um, the only thing I think was interesting, and it's it still, Nelson Cruz was obviously the better player, but the only thing I think was interesting is batting average-wise, Nelson Cruz had a .33 batting average this week versus Matt Wieters .316. And in terms of on-base percentage, Nelson Cruz had a .391 on-base percentage versus Matt Wieters .364. So it's interesting that that gap was much smaller in terms of batting average and on-base percentage, but stretched out with weighted on-base average. And I can clearly say, just, just doing an eye test, that I think Nelson Cruz was a dynamic factor in this Red Sox series this whole weekend. So kudos for picking him. But I do think it comes back to emphasizing the aspect of why WOBA is actually a decent stat because it does kind of makes sense when you're looking at it in person as well. I think the difficult thing, if we're going to use this exercise to analyze whether WOBA is a useful stat or not, is that we both picked good candidates. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, Matt Weider's performance over the week versus Nelson Cruz. They both had good weeks. Right. So it's not like, you know, it's not like we're splitting hairs, but at the same time, the difference isn't huge. No, it's not huge, but I think it's interesting that it's a lot huger for WOBA in, in this category than where if we were just looking at it saying, Batting average, we've been sure. like, eh, it was a toss-up. But in this case, there is a huge difference there. It's over, you know, 0.075, which is just night and day for me. So kudos, tip the cap to you. Two to one with a slight asterisk. And uh, Jake, what's the category you're going for this week? Well, you know, I, I clearly did so well with the expanded uh, statistic that I'm going to stay away from the back of the baseball card, and I'm going to dig deep into whatever it is that you call statistics. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with RC27. Okay. I do know what that is, but you're going to have to explain to what that is to everybody else. I cannot wait for you to hear you explain this. Uh, no, this is runs, runs created for 27 outs. Uh, run, it, it basically takes runs created, which I'll get back to in a second, mm-hmm. and it then divides it by the number of outs that the player made and then multiplies it by 27. Mm-hmm. So it basically takes the runs created that they're responsible for and projects that out over an entire game. So how useful would this player be over an entire game of just this player, and how does that build towards a win? Okay. So... Can yeah. I throw one more stat at you? Oh, please do. Okay. Another interesting thing to throw out is WRC+, plus, which is weighted runs created, which basically eliminates park factors, but also it throws it into a percentile. So just keep that in mind in the future. It eliminates the whole 27 out things and just kind of puts into a percentile. Right. All right, so what, what are the strengths and weaknesses then of, of RC27? What are the runs created over 27? Okay, so run, runs created for, for 27 ounces is fine. It just gives you a 
a number, but it's actually kind of cool to do WRC plus because it allows you to compare two different players that are completely independent of park factors and say, let's say I want to compare Miguel Cabrera to Chris Davis. They both play in two different parks. I'm eliminating park factors here. And I'm specifically looking at how those two players compared against each other, but also I can look at how they compare against the entire major league as well. All right. Well, we're going to do RC 27. That's now. fine. That, that's a good solid stat. If I'm broadening my horizons here. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I should get credit. Now, if sort I'm of. not mistaken, I'm kind of proud. The, the runs created calculation is basically, um, hits the sum of hits and walks times, uh, total bases, which is then divided by the sum of the number of at bats and walks for a player. That sounds about right. It depends on which, you know, sabermetric library you're going to, but yes, that's perfectly fine. All right. So we will, we will look this up. Uh, we will keep track of it all week. Scott, I have, I have picked uh, the category. I'm going to throw it over to you. Which player do you want? Uh, Jake, I am going to go with Adam Jones. You rat bastard. <laughs> I, I was going to go with Adam Jones. That having been the case, I am going to go, I'm going to go with Chris Davis. Okay. So we're going with number three and number four in the lineup and we'll see who creates the most amount of runs. I'm really hoping that Chris Davis has a big turnaround week because he's, he's been scuffling a little bit. It's not so much scuffling. He's just been walking a lot. So That's true. Like we talked with Steve Molesky, he's going to turn it around eventually. It's just a situation of everyone around him is raking, and I'm just hoping that everyone continues to rake around him. So with that, Jake, we have picked our people who will own it. So now let's go find out who owned it this week in the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's right. It's time. It's time for the good, the bad, and for the ugly. Basically, in this segment, Scott and I determined who had a great week, who had a terrible week, and who embarrassed us to be Orioles fans. Now, I like to go first for a very simple reason, and that is because in the ugly category, Scott's rants far exceed the quality of my own. So I'm going to go ahead and get started. And we've talked a little bit so far, Scott, about my good. My good for this week is Baldo Jimenez. Again, not to repeat anything we've said, outside of one horrific pitch with a bad outcome, Abaldo Jimenez was really well put together for his start against the Red Sox this week. And it was the, the, I hope it was a sign of things to come. And when you look at that start, you know, he ended up with an ugly, you know, 675 ERA or what have you. But he was in command for almost all of that game against a really good lineup. And again, if it hadn't been for the one pitch, it would have been a really great start. I think that uh, Abaldo Jimenez is going to be better than what we've seen, and I think that this particular start was a sign of things to come. So okay. again, my my good, Abaldo Jimenez. Okay. Um, my good for the week is going to catch you off guard. Twister, um, I'm going to go with Boston Red Sox, actually, as my good. I really thought that their tribute in the first 30 minutes of bringing out the 
um, Boston Marathon runners from the previous year that had been injured, but also recognizing the police fire staff, but also the hospital workers that treated um, some of the victims at the Boston Marathon really was a classy gesture by the Boston Red Sox organization. Um, so good job, Boston Red Sox. The only slight beef I have with you was calling David Ortiz an expert philosopher. Besides that, really nice ceremony. Kudos. Well done. They also uh, had a moment of silence for Monica Barlow. Yes. Very nicely done by the Red Sox organization. So good job. All right. I'm going to go into my bad for this week. And my bad this week goes to Chris Davis. Chris Davis is hurting. Two hits over 14 at-bats in the last seven games. That comes out to a crisp slash line of 143, 455, 143, and 597. Again, just not getting it done. Striking out an awful lot. Seven Ks led the team this this past week. It's interesting that a lot more of them are are looking, it seems like. You know, he's he's trying to be selective, and he's just not not getting it done. And, uh, again, for me, bad this week. Um, my bad for the week is going to go to Jonathan Scope. Yes, he had a four-hit game on Friday, and that was a big, big, big part of them uh, them winning that night. But at the same point, the constant up and down, up and down for the season, you just don't like to see it. Jonathan, you're, you're a great player. You're doing seasoning. But again, you're not putting yourself in a great position to remain in this club throughout the entire season. You're looking more and more like the player that needs to go back into AA or AAA and learn how to hit the breaking ball and just kind of become a little bit more seasoned. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Matt Wieters went down and was sent back down to kind of be seasoned again. But Jonathan Scope, you're on notice. Yikes. Yeah. All right, my ugly for this week is kind of related. Mm -hmm. And my ugly for this week is Baltimore Orioles fans who got on the case of Jonathan Scope. Mm -hmm. Now, we've talked about this a little bit. I'm going to admit to you, Scott, I don't know as much as I need to about infield shifts to be able to beat up any Major League Baseball player for their positioning on a play like the one that ended Sunday night's game. I wonder how many fans who have been so vocal can admit the same thing, because I guarantee they're they're not all experts. Everyone in Birdland is so quick to judge. Yes, Jonathan Scope has had some errors. Jonathan Scope has had some terrible games. And Jonathan Scope is not Manny Machado. But we have to keep in mind that he is a rookie, and we have to keep in mind that Buck Showalter keeps playing him for a reason. And that reason is that right now at third base, he's a better option than Ryan Flaherty. He's a better option than bringing somebody up like Alexi Casilla or whoever we have in AAA until J.J. Hardy and Manny Machado can get right and can get healthy. We're going to see Jonathan Scope because he's the best that this organization has to offer at the major league level right now. And you're going to have to get over the fact that it's not perfect. This lineup has sluggers all up and down. This defensive uh, alignment for the Orioles has amazing talent. And not everybody that we're going to field is going to be an all-star. Not everybody's going to be a superstar. And yes, from time to time, you're going to have ugly games from a guy like Jonathan Scope. You're also going to get a couple four for five games where he shines and shows you that value, shows you that talent that makes guys like Buck Showalter so keen on Jonathan Scope. So my ugly this week is Oriole fans who have nothing better to do than to harp on Jonathan Scope. You, sir, are on notice. All right, Jake, um, 
My ugly for the week is going to go to the Boston Red Sox fans. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, you know, my good for the week was the Boston Red Sox organization coming out and saying, you know, we're going to honor the marathon um, runners and, you know, kind of give a, you know, a tribute to them. Memorial, as you point, pointed out, is a, is a good word to use. But I was kind of thrown back by the aspect of the constant panning shots throughout Fenway Stadium when that ceremony first started happening. And it was maybe a third of the way full. And I know that personally, if that was the situation in Baltimore and there was this great tragedy and it was the year anniversary, there's no way that stadium would have been, you know, partially full. I'm even going to go back to the aspect of New York City. If it was the one year anniversary of 9-11, there was no way that Yankee Stadium was going to be partially full for the anniversary of 9-11. This is a situation where, yes, Boston Red Sox fans, you can go out and get a bumper sticker that says Boston Strong. But you really need to go out there and, you know, pay tribute to it as opposed to saying, I've got a bumper sticker on the back of my car that says Boston Strong. Yes, we can hashtag. Yes, we can say anything we want. But I'm really just the aspect of how much does that really mean in your life? The one interesting thing that was bothering me was the uh, the fund that was established for the Boston Marathon victims through John Hancock had only raised $80 million to this point, which I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's great. It's $80 million. But do you know how much was raised for 9-11 through the city of New York? $7 billion. So Boston, yes, I understand. This is a great travesty. But I think, you know, when we look back at it, Boston Strong, yeah, we're Boston Strong and we're willing to support you. But don't just use that as a rallying cry for the Boston Red Sox. Use that as an aspect of building your community and doing what you can to pay it forward on a day-in and day-out basis. So Boston Red Sox, you're my ugly. Boston Red Sox fans, you're my ugly. All right, fair enough. Well, Scotty, uh, we've we've hit that time of the show. We've done the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's now time to blow the save. And if it's all right with you, I just want to throw a bit of shot and Freud uh, toward fans of the uh, Washington Nationals. Okay. Did you see uh, Bryce Harper getting pulled this week for not hustling? Yes, he was pulled by White Williams because they had an agreement of how to conduct themselves. And, well, he didn't conduct himself well running down that base path. It was pretty embarrassing. We talk about Manny Machado being in that class of young players like Mike Trout and Bryce Harper. You got to know that Manny Machado would run all the way to first base on a play like that. You know that superstars like Adam Jones that are leading this club will do the same. God, I'm glad I root for this group of guys. Because with that, the exception of maybe Delman Young, they all seem pretty good. And uh, Does this mean I need to throw away my keep hustling Bryce Harper program that I got from the Nationals game? Oh, no. Please wave that proudly. Okay. And with that, I think that basically blows the save. Jake, anything else to say? Absolutely not. With that, Baltimore and beyond, I'll bid you all a fond adieu-adieu. Good night, Baltimore. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.